Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus 1:15 to 2:10. The word of God speaks to us. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word to us. Good morning, Frontline. How are we? It's great to see you guys. Thanks for being here today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry and I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, in this moment, my heart is full enough to burst with gratitude to the Lord for what he's doing in our church. This weekend was so rich, it was so beautiful. It was such a gift to my soul to hear the voices of 700 women worshiping Jesus and to see you ladies fighting for one another, serving one another, engaging one another's hearts was powerful, it was beautiful. And I wanna say that what we experienced this weekend and what we're gonna lean into for the next three Sundays is an artifact of one of the core theological values of our church. One of the things that we seek to be by God's grace is a gender redeeming church. Now I'm fully aware that the idea of gender, manhood and womanhood is hotly contested ground in our culture. I'm aware of that. And I have no desire to lean into controversy for the sake of controversy. None of our pastors want to make ourselves human pinatas as a hobby. But the value that we have on seeing the glory of God in man and woman, the depth of what it means to reflect the image of God as man and woman in partnership under the finished work of Jesus is not just contested ground, it's holy ground. It gets to the very core of who we are as human beings. It gets to the very essence of the triune God. It's a reminder of what God's doing in history and where history is moving even into eternity. 
So even though these are things that might be controversial and they bring up wounds and fears and insecurities, to wrestle with what God's vision is for man and woman and how Jesus steps into the brokenness, our sins and our failures, our shortcomings, our weaknesses and our limitations brings us very near to the heart of God and what he wants to do among his church. So for the next three weeks, we get to talk about some of the facets of the beauty of bearing the image of God as women. We get to lean into the glory of womanhood and what God wants to show the people of our church as we open the pages of scripture and see again and again and again, women that are captured by the glory of God and who give their lives away, not as generic people, but as women, as women. And as we lean into this, I'm aware that the expressive individualism that's perhaps the primary false gospel of our day is cheapening what it means to be a part of the church. When I say expressive individualism, I just mean the sort of pervasive water that we swim in that tells us that the deepest answers to the core questions of humanity, who am I? What's life about? What's the good life? Where is joy? Where is meaning? are questions that we find answers to when we simply look inside of ourselves. Through self-actualization, through just being true to me, through simply following my heart and making my own path and not having any external forms of authority or life outside of myself, expressive individualism promises to give us the world, but increasingly it cheapens what it actually means to be people. And what happens when we buy into this belief in the church is that we start to reduce the deep work of transformation that God wants to offer his people to simple self-help. What we don't want to do for the next three weeks is simply offer more life coaching or more hacks or ways in which you can simply do a gloss on the outside of your life or simply renovate the cabinets in your kitchen by putting cheap paint on top of things that are broken. What we actually want to do as the people of God is realize that Jesus Christ died on a cross and he was raised from the dead to do something way more beautiful than simply tweaking the externals of our life or being another voice among the thousands of influencers that offers ways that we can sort of reflect the image that we're creating into the world. What Jesus wants to do is change us. He doesn't want to offer band-aids to broken bones. He has something powerful that he wants to give us as both men and women as we talk about this. And in the midst of the rampant individualism, what can start to happen in the church is we can start to see ourselves, we can start to see ourselves as factions that are all fighting for a zero sum piece of the pie. Meaning, if my particular stage of life or if my particular questions are being addressed in a sermon, I'm going to lean in because it's about me and it's for me. But if it's not touching my stage of life or my particular concerns this moment, I'm going to lean out because it doesn't really matter. What I want you to see today is that not only does God want to offer transformation, but what's good for one member in a biological family is good for the whole family. Can I get an amen? If, if character grows in one person in the family, if virtue is formed in one person in the family, if one person in the family gets a clear sense of who they are and what they exist for, that's a blessing to the whole family. And the same thing is true in the people of God. We're not various groups and factions that are lobbying against each other. We have a deeper unity in the church than we even have in our biological family. We've been made one in Jesus. And I'm convinced as we talk about what the Bible says about womanhood, that God wants to give gifts to all the people in our church. We're praying not just for the ladies, but we're praying for the brothers in the room. That over the course of the next three weeks, that God would give us the gift of repentance for the ways that we've dishonored the ladies in our lives. That God would give gifts to our sisters as men in the church, as brothers and husbands and dads are convicted of the ways in which we haven't seen the unique glory of womanhood that reflects the image of God. That God would tenderize our hearts as brothers and that we would grow as men in appreciation and honor and respect for the women that God has brought into our church as gifts. 
And as the ladies in our church are diverse with various ages and stages of life, we're blessed to have single women and married women. We're blessed to have older women, grandmothers. We're blessed with women that have babies. We have so many precious women in our church that have not had babies, and that's a source of pain and loss and difficulty. Wherever you find yourself today, I'm convinced that our God is big enough, he's big enough to give the gift that you need to see Jesus more clearly. As we talk about these things over the next few weeks, I want to be clear up front that the mystery of womanhood is profound. We will not be able to comprehensively cover all the questions that you bring into the room. And as such, we want to serve you guys, not to simply put all the weight of Christian community on Sunday morning, but we want to serve you guys to study for yourselves, to be in communities between Sundays all over our city that are fighting to grow and learn and sharpen one another. And as such, we've got a whole list of resources so that we can, we can both begin and continue conversations with open Bibles about this important topic. So for the next three weeks, we get to hold up a beautiful diamond that God created, that Jesus redeemed, and we get to hold it up to the light, and we get to look at a few different facets, knowing there's much that we won't get to talk about. Now, with that in mind, I want to pray for you guys and ask you to pray for me, and let's open our Bibles to Exodus 1 and 2. Father, the the picture I had in my heart this morning was of you clothing your daughters in royalty putting a white robe of the righteousness of Jesus on their shoulders, placing crowns on their heads as they follow Jesus to take dominion of the various domains that you've given them to order and breathe life into. And the picture of the men of our church seeing our sisters arrayed with the glory of Jesus and being brought not to worship women, but to worship Jesus to thank him for the gift of manhood and womanhood and motherhood and sisterhood. So we pray today, Lord, that you would give us tender hearts. Lord, I pray in the places where we're, where we're aware of gaping wounds, gaping wounds, that you would do the work to bring the balm of the gospel that would make healing possible. And where our hearts are hard, would you give us the sovereign gift of tender hearts? That's something you do, Lord. And where we're confused, would you give us just a little bit more light to see more clearly? We pray all this in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Amen. I want to begin our three weeks of talking of the glory of womanhood by reminding you of something that you've heard about before. 2,000 years ago, a young woman's receptivity to God And her receptivity to life became ground zero for darkness being dispelled on planet earth. With Mary's yes to God, the gloom of sin, the darkness of death, and the powers and principalities were scattered through the birth of her baby. Her willingness to carry his life And to bring his life into this world with sacrifice and pain and suffering quite literally changed everything. One of my favorite pastors and thinkers is a guy in the UK named Andrew Wilson, and he sums it up beautifully like this. He says, the world fell in a man through a woman, and the world is redeemed in a man through a woman. And though none of Mary's sisters will give birth to God incarnate, can I get a quick amen as a heresy check? (laughs) And though millions of Mary's sisters will never experience the unique joys and pains of biological motherhood, all of Mary's sisters are called into the glory of offering life to the world. This is part of the unique mystery of womanhood. The story that God is telling, and make no mistake, it is a story. It's a picture that's bigger than just the sum of its parts. The story that God is telling in creating women's bodies with the potential to carry life, to receive life, and to bring life includes biology, but it encompasses so much more. What God is revealing of himself in woman is true for women that have children, 
It's true for women that have experienced the pain of not being able to have children. And it's true for women who through circumstance and life don't have children. Woman in the beginning was created as a life giver. Genesis chapter three, verse 20 records these words. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, language matters then and now, and the language of Genesis is really powerful and it's really important. Divine language in the book of Genesis creates reality. God speaks and out of nothing, the universe is formed. God speaks and reality comes into being in alignment with his perfect word and his perfect will. Human language in the book of Genesis corresponds to reality. It doesn't create reality. It names what is. And when Adam calls his wife name Eve, which simply means life or living, and when he says that she's the mother of all the living, Adam is describing something not just of Eve, but of woman's unique God-designed essence. What Adam says about Eve includes her biological potential to carry life and bring life into the world, but Eve was the mother of the living even before she conceived and gave birth to her children. And one of the ways that Eve models for us receptivity to God and receptivity to life is that Eve actually believed the gospel that God first preached to the serpent. After Adam and Eve sinned and the fall shattered all of creation and death followed on the heels of sin, God gave a promise that he spoke directly to the serpent that's the first preaching of the good news of the gospel. God told the serpent that in the fullness of time, the seed of the woman would crush his head. And Eve, even in the midst of the sorrow and grief of her failure and her husband's failure, latched onto those words, believed those words, and Eve carried hope for the world before she carried a child. In fact, it's not too much to say that Eve carried a child because she first carried hope. What I want you to see today as we turn to Exodus 1 and 2 is that the the beautiful invitation of God to his daughters to be life givers includes the relational spiritual work of fostering what God's doing, receiving the life of God and fighting for the life of God in a multitude of ways and relationships and includes mother as life giver. So take your Bible, go to Exodus 1 and 2, and let me give you a little bit of background. The Exodus is the definitive work of God's redemption in the Old Testament. And what's amazing about the work of redemption in God delivering his people from slavery is that before Moses shows up, before the Passover is accomplished, before God brings judgment to the gods of Egypt, before the parting of the Red Sea, before God gives the law, God raises up a resistance movement to defy a culture of death that the false gods of Egypt had ushered into the land. And what's wild about this resistance movement is that it's not headed up by a prophet or prophets, it's not headed up by warriors, it's not led by priests, But actually, this resistance movement of life begins with midwives and then moves to a mother named Jochebed. These are women that embodied both spiritually and physically feminine strength to stand as life givers. And they stand as a reminder for the covenant community of God for all time of the unique essence of womanhood to receive the life of God and to cultivate and offer the life of God to those around them. Now, the stakes of bringing life into enemy-occupied territory have always been high, and they couldn't have been higher in Exodus 1 and 2. It was a moment of deep death. It was a moment of sin and despair. It was a moment where powers and principalities were obscuring the glory of God. Exodus 1 verse 8 tells us these words. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, the loss of Joseph is not really ultimately about Joseph at all here. It's about God's self-disclosure to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph being a link in the chain of the promise that God made. The promise that God made is that he is the great I am, 
And he himself would be a blessing to the nations through an offspring, through an offspring that would be born from their line. And what God is saying in that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that promise that Joseph carried on is that God is not just, he's not just the God of heaven, he's also the God of history. He's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the nations. He's not one God among many, he's the sovereign God of all. And he himself promised and pledged that through his power and his faithfulness, he would bring about peace, restoration, and salvation. So for Joseph to be forgotten in Egypt is not just about Joseph, it's about forgetting the work of God. And what happens in these chapters is a reminder of what happens in history again and again and again when God's work is forget, forgotten, people's worth is also forgotten. Theological amnesia leads to anthropological amnesia. All I mean by that is that if we forget God, we forget what people are for. And if we forget what God is doing, we forget what life is about. The loss of God and the knowledge of what he's doing and the promise that he made in Egypt is what led to the enslavement of Israel and that enslavement of Israel eventually led to infanticide. And in the midst of that darkness and that death, God raises up the midwives to actually model a receptivity to God and an offering of life to the world. Take your Bible and look what happens starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Let's see if we can nudge those names into the top 10 this year. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and circle the next line, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families and Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, I want you to practice sharpening your biblical imagination for just a second. I want you to picture what Hebrews describes as the great cloud of witnesses. Those are all the saints that have gone before us. Those are the old covenant people of God that received God's promise that one day he would bring a Messiah. And the cloud of witnesses also includes all the new covenant people of God that have trusted in the finished work of Jesus for the last 2,000 years. And the Bible tells us that all of those people haven't ceased to exist. They actually are around the throne of Jesus, worshiping Christ and praying for us. And in the midst of all of those people, all of those that have gone before, in their midst stand the midwives and I want you to imagine the midwives asking us some questions. What would the midwives want to interrogate us about in 2024? I think the first question that the midwives would ask you and me is, whom will you fear? Whom will you fear? Two times in this passage, the author highlights that the midwives feared God. And that's not a throwaway. That's not an accident because Pharaoh considered himself the God king. In Egypt, if you looked into the eyes of Pharaoh, you could be executed. The word of Pharaoh was to be obeyed, no questions asked. Death was the penalty of disobeying Pharaoh. But what the midwives got is that they couldn't have an all-encompassing giant vision of Pharaoh and an accurate vision of God simultaneously. You can either have a big Pharaoh or you can have a big God, but you can't have both. And what had happened in the lives of the midwives is they had been captured by the glory of God. And that glory led to awe and splendor. They saw the weightiness and holiness of God, his strength, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his goodness. And what happened when they got a right glimpse of God is that Pharaoh got shrunk down to actual size. 
He's not a God. He's a man. He's not the author of history. He's simply a part of it. The first thing that these midwives model for you and me in the covenant community is that to be a life giver is to stand in the midst of a world that's full of all kinds of things that have teeth. And you and me are fragile. There's people that are bigger than us. There's circumstances we can't control. There's chaos all around us. There's all kinds of things that should make you not get out of bed in the morning. There are all sorts of disasters that could befall us. And in the midst of all of the darkness, it's a natural, normal human response to shrink in fear. But to be a life giver, to walk in redeemed feminine strength is to actually have a vision of God that fortifies you in such a way that you are able to laugh at the future. Proverbs 31 describes a woman who out the stages of her life has come to know the workings of God and she's reflecting the glory of God. And it says that strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. Sisters, one of the first hopes that I have for you in the course of this year is that you, in the midst of all of the anxiety that wants your attention, the fear that maybe you're not gonna find the spouse that you want, or the fear that your kids might go wrong, or the fear that your marriage might go sideways, or the fear of man that paralyzes us, that makes us almost worship people that don't know what the heck they're talking about, even though they pretend that they do. All of those fears of people and circumstances and loss and pain, what we need from the women of God in our church is the kind of stubborn refusal that the midwives had to cringe before Pharaoh, to actually plant your feet as life givers in our church and laugh at the days to come because you believe in the very core of your being that there's one God, not many, and that he's at work and he sent his son Jesus as the pledge of his faithfulness to you and he's working all things together for your good. Secondly, I think that the midwives would ask us, will you you receive God? There's something about womanhood that models for us receptivity. And the question that they would ask us is, will you receive God and will you receive what he's doing to give life? The king asked the midwives, why have you done this letting the male children live? And you can almost imagine them responding to him that the answer to his question is quite obvious. When God gives a gift, you don't throw that gift in the Nile. You receive what God's doing and you join what God's doing. You actually bring your life, even if you have to throw elbows to get to what God's doing, you bring your life in alignment with the work of God around you and where he's already cultivating life and you plant your feet in the middle of it. And what's amazing about this is the danger and the cost of receiving the life of God and joining what God was doing in the covenant community. This was clandestine work. They had to do this under the cover of darkness. They did this under the threat of death. I don't know what the Egyptian equivalent of the Gestapo would have been, but these are midwives that at great personal risk would hear that God is giving life. He's doing something over here with this mom. I'm gonna join this even if it costs me everything. This is a courageous willingness to run to the very edge of what God's doing and to jump into the middle of it. And it's dangerous and it's inconvenient. Now, I I don't have any statistical data to prove this, but my personal experience and being a part of a church where we typically have anywhere from 25 to 50 babies a year born, um, it's anecdotal, but it seems true that babies are born at very inconvenient times. (laughs) Babies are inconsiderate human beings and that starts in the womb. Babies do not pay attention to banker hours. Babies are typically born in the wee of the morning, in the middle of the night, when it's too hot, when it's too cold. And what these midwives are modeling for us is the kind of willingness to be inconvenienced and to sacrifice and to serve. They are not the center of their life. They've modeled receptivity to God that centers God and moves them away from themselves to what he's doing in others. This leads us to the third thing, It's so beautiful to me. I think the midwives would ask us 
if we're willing to stand in the blood and the mess and the pain of life and point ahead to joy. My, my favorite thing that happened the last week was getting the opportunity to interview two of my friends, uh, Katie, who served for years as a labor and delivery nurse, and my friend Ashley, who serves as a doula. And I just wanted to pick their brain. I, I've only been in the room two times in the midst of the chaos of birth. And I just wanted to ask those ladies, what are your thoughts and observations? What, did you, what have you learned from being in the room at the moment of birth that's applied to the way that you see discipleship? And what happens in gospel community and when people meet Jesus and when God's doing breakthrough and both of them said to me the same thing, that in the midst of the pain and the agony, the mess and the blood and the gore and all of the absolute breaking points that a mom gets to, what happens in the midst of all that mess is that when the baby comes, that pain is forgotten. And the mom gets to hold her baby and she gets to say it was worth it. In fact, she might not even say it was worth it. It almost seems as if she forgets what she just went through being so caught up in the glory of the new life that came. Brothers and sisters, and sisters in particular, to be a life giver is to realize that death can be tranquil. Like you can die peacefully. You can die in your sleep. You can die in your couch. But birth and life is never tranquil. It's always bloody, it's always messy, it's always scary. And the work of a midwife is to look at a mom and say, oh no, you can do this. Your body was designed to do this. In fact, there's no way out of this, but through this, keep pushing, keep enduring, because joy is coming, don't give up. The feminine work of life-giving is to stand in the midst of chaos and mess and not be squeamish, but to know at the very core of your being the truth of what it says in Hebrews, that for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. There are things that God's doing in our church right now in our communities that feel like death that feel like God's forgotten, feel like he's abandoned, feel like you can't keep enduring, you can't keep pushing. It feels like the life that might've started is, is about to end or devour everything. And in the midst of all of that blood, here's what it means to be a life giver. It means you champion the reality that God's working and it's worth it. And what's gonna come out of it is good. And God is faithful and he keeps his promises. And even in the midst of the suffering and pain, you can be confident that God's gonna supply everything that you need to finish the work of change that he started in you. Now, in the midst of all that, these midwives remind us that life givers are essential for the depth and the glory of the people of God. It tells us that because of the work of the midwives and the moms, that the people multiplied and grew very strong. That's not a throwaway line. That's a reminder that the people of God need spiritual dads and brothers, and they need spiritual moms and sisters if we're going to flourish. And the whole Bible is full of women who are receptive to God and the life that he brings, who through nurture and teaching and hospitality and service and sacrifice were life givers who received God and received the gifts that he was giving in the community. In one chapter, Exodus chapter two, we're gonna be introduced to Pharaoh's daughter who took compassion on the baby found in the basket, who was moved to nurture him, who actually became a life giver by coming alongside Moses and equipping him with the resources of Egypt so that God could overthrow Egypt. Moses' little sister models what it looks like to be a life giver as she stands diligently by watching out for her little brother. And then she takes initiative. She risks to go up and talk to the Pharaoh's daughter. Like who is she as a slave to talk to her? But she sticks out her neck because she's watchful and she's watching her brother because she wants to make sure that his life is preserved. It's found all over the New Testament. It's found in one of my favorite people in the Bible, Lydia who was most likely a, a widowed woman who was a business, she was a business leader in the city of Philippi who provided rest and respite for Paul and his traveling companions. 
She created a space for guys that needed rest and renewal in God to experience a break from the grind of mission so that they could simply reconnect with the goodness of Jesus. It's found in Lydia using her home as an incubator of the Philippian church. Like gospel hospitality is not a throwaway. Gospel hospitality literally adorns the gospel. Lydia used her home as the place that God brought transformation and birthed a church. It's found in the charity and good works of Dorcas. I I don't have faith that we can get Dorcas into the top 10 names this year. You can read her story in Acts chapter nine. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. In that story, Dorcas is so rich in good works. She's literally like the multi-purpose back of simply being a life giver in the Christian community and using her gifts to serve everybody. And then she dies and the Christian community is so shaken by this life giver being taken from them that they're like, we can't let this stand. Somebody sin for one of the apostles. She needs to be raised from the dead. So they call for Peter. Peter comes, raises her from the dead and she picks up where she left off, offering her gifts and her passion away to cultivate life. It's found in Rufus, Rufus's mom, who was like a mom to Paul, who in the midst of Paul's sufferings brought maternal grace and wisdom and nurture to him. It's found in the life-giving words of Philip's four unmarried daughters who prophesied, who brought life by speaking truth to the Christian community. My prayer for us as a church is that we would have sisters of courage and sisters who are so attuned to the life of God and what God's doing that they would stand in the midst of all of the messes of transformation and offer their gifts and their talent and their passion to cultivate life. This applies to you, whether you're young or old, whether you have kids or don't have kids. If you are a woman God has a ministry of life-giving that the people around you need. Now, I want to talk about motherhood. And what can happen so many times is out of fear of hitting the exceptions and the painful stories that often motherhood is not talked about the way that the Bible talks about it. And I'm aware of the fact that to talk about motherhood can be a painful thing for some of us in the room, but in the midst of recognizing those realities, I also want us to hold up the glory of motherhood and the ways in which God wants to offer life through moms to the world. Take your Bible and look at Exodus chapter two. This is the story of Jochebed, Moses' mom. It says this, now a man from the house of Levi, he went and took his wife, took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was very fine, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. I want to give you just a few things from this text to think about. First of all, motherhood, brothers and sisters, motherhood, proclaims hope in God in a world that's dark and broken. Many of us could look at Jacobed's story and think, well, it's really irresponsible that a slave under the rule of an evil pharaoh would bring a child into a world like that. How dare you, Jacobed, bring a baby into a world that's so broken? But what Jacobed is modeling for us is that she's confident that history belongs to God, that the world is God's world, And she's going to trust in his providence. She's going to trust in his faithfulness. She's going to trust that if he gives the gift of a baby, he's big enough to accomplish his purposes for that baby. Motherhood points to hope in God. And it's so easy. It's so easy in our culture to think that, you know, it's a bad time to have a baby. It's a unwise thing to have a baby because the culture around us feels like it's crumbling and there's tension and there's animosity and there's all kinds of things going in the world that feel like it's unmaking the goodness of creation. Jochebed reminds us that if God calls you to have a baby, you're planting your feet on the rock of Jesus and you're trusting that God's in charge. Secondly, motherhood pictures the hospitality of God. Pictures the hospitality of God. Abigail Favalli points out in Genesis of Gender that a pregnant woman is an image of that love that generates all things. 
the love in which we live and move and have our being. The dependence of that baby inside of you that doesn't offer anything to you in return, that just takes its neediness, that just makes you sick for the first trimester, that just tap dances on your bladder towards the end. That baby is not really offering anything. He's not sweetening the deal while it lives inside your womb. It's just taking, it's a reminder, an imperfect reminder because God is never diminished, but it's a reminder nonetheless that he is a giver, that we live and move in him, that he provides, that if he was hungry, he wouldn't tell us. This is a super fun season in the life of our staff because we have so many of the ladies on our staff that are pregnant right now. And it's just fun to see them break out healthy snacks in the office every single day. They're eating cherries and high protein. And every time I walk by one of these ladies, I'm just amazed by the fact that they are building a human being inside their body. See, motherhood reminds us again and again and again that God in his perfection and completion is a fountain of life that gives, that gives. He doesn't give because he needs, he gives because he's God. <laughs> That's who he is. In addition, motherhood reminds us of the beauty of unseen worship. In addition to the night feedings and the diapers and all of the other work of Jochebed to care for Moses, things that happen while everybody else in the house is asleep. She took God knows how long to build a basket out of reeds to treat that basket so that it would be watertight. We don't know when she worked on it, probably early in the morning or late at night. But like so much of motherhood, what she did to love and serve her baby wasn't seen as a big, important deal. It wasn't seen and celebrated by the people around her. It happened quietly in hiddenness but it happened as an act of worship before God that saw it. Nothing models what Jesus says in Mark chapter six better than moms. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Moms, the service that you offer, especially the physically exhausting service in the first part of parenting, can feel like such a drain on the stuff that's out there that feels more important. I know so many moms of young kids in our church that even feel guilty that they're not doing like an hour-long quiet time every day like they used to do. And what I would commend to you is that those little acts of service, those things that are unseen, those things that feel menial, the changing of diapers, the nursing of babies, the ways in which you care for wounds as they scrape their knees, those unseen things, when done as an act of love and worship, are glorious to God. Those are part of the crowns that you're going to throw down before the feet of Jesus. Those are good things. Those are things that matter even if our culture doesn't think that they matter. Our culture wants big, sexy things done publicly. Our God delights in quiet, hidden things that are done for his glory in the secret place. And finally, two things that I wanna leave you with. Motherhood is about sending and it's mixed with pain. I want you to imagine what it would have felt like to be Jochebed in the intensification of evil in Egypt. It went from Pharaoh commanding that the midwives would kill the baby boys to Pharaoh making a public decree that anybody could and should kill the baby boys. And she hides the baby for as long as she can. She hides the baby for three months. And then she gets to this place, this crossroads, where to keep the baby in her home anymore would guarantee that the baby would die. So she has to do something that's an acute, concentrated version of what every mom has to do with every child. She lets the baby go and, and trust God. I still don't fully understand this, but as an empty nester, watching my wife 
send her babies into the world. I understand it a little bit more. There's a releasing and there's a trusting that mothers have to face that's acute and it's painful. And what Simeon said to Mary when he prophesied that a sword shall pierce your heart also is also true of every single mom. To raise kids and to send kids into the world is a model for the entire church of the importance of releasing and trusting God. Raising up and sending out. Letting go of God's good gifts, not holding on to them so that they sour in our hands. Moms model for us at every turn the goodness of open-handedness that trust that God's at work. And lastly, sisters, motherhood makes a generational impact. I'm sure Jacoba did amazing other things with her gifts and talents. We don't know the ways in which she served the covenant people of God. We don't know the many ways that she gave away her time and her resources to those in need. I'm sure she did beautiful things with her life. But one thing we do know for certain She was the mom of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam, who prophesied and worshiped God as they crossed the Red Sea. Aaron, who stood as a priest before God and the people. And Moses, who God used to bring the people out of Egypt. She got to make a generational impact by being a mom. One of the things I so want for our church as we grow in the next five years is that we would counter the lie of the world that being a mom is something that's less important than all the other things in our lives. As if being a mom is like circling the runway until the important stuff in life happens. The message me and Nancy got again and again in the early years of our marriage and the church culture that we were raised in is that the real important ministry was out there. The real important stuff, if you really want to make an impact, if you really want your, your life to count, if you're really going to give your life away, it's, it's the big stuff that's out there that other people are going to celebrate. Hey, there's all kinds of things that God has for you, sisters. There's all kinds of things that matter. There's all kinds of gifts and capacities inside of you. Please, please, please don't bind the lie that if God calls you to be a mom, that you're somehow sacrificing the best for something lesser. It's not true. It's not true. And the work of handing the good news of Jesus one generation to the next, it certainly includes the work of fathers and their important role in the home. But in those early formative years, what a mom offers to their children is profound. It changes generations. Moms literally shape the history of the world by giving their lives to their kids. And I want us to be a church that honors moms. I want us to be a church that blesses moms. And I want us to be a church when the world says, that doesn't really matter, that says, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. We're not even gonna be swayed by that nonsense. I'll close with this. It was a helpful article. I wanna leave you with this. This is the words of uh, Rachel Jankovic on Desiring God. I thought it was beautiful. Children rank below college, below world travel for sure, below the ability to go out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job you may have or hope to get. In fact, children rate below your desire to sit around and pick your toes if that's what you want to do. Below everything. Children are the last thing you should spend your time on. And then she says, motherhood, though, is not a hobby. It's a calling. You do not collect children because you find them cuter than stamps. It's not something you do if you can squeeze the time in. It's what God gave you time for. Christian mothers carry their children in hostile territory. When you're in public with them, you are standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You are publicly testifying that you value what God values, 
that you refuse to value what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy. You represent everything that our culture hates because you represent laying your life down for another and laying down your life for another represents the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask that all across this room, you administer the timely thing that my sisters need. Um, if there's places where there needs to be repentance, Lord, would you minister that gift? And the places where my sisters need to set down shame, would you minister that gift? And the places where fear needs to be laid down in exchange for awe and wonder before the living God, would you give that gift? And for moms in the room that have experienced a sword piercing their own souls, would you meet them in that place? Jesus, didn't you tell us, blessed are those that mourn because they'll be comforted? And Lord, I want to ask you today that you would fortify the women in this room in the life-giving work that you've called them to do. In their community, in their neighborhood, in their jobs, in their schools. Would you fortify the single women of this room as life-givers? as midwives that come alongside the mess of what you're doing and join in? Would you fortify the married women in this room? Would you fortify moms with little kids in this room to continue to offer unseen worship and trust in the living God? God, would you bless my sisters that are older in the room? Would you grow and strengthen them to be mighty women of valor that would teach what is good and as we come to this meal, would you feed us? Would you restore us? Would you heal us?